Thank you, Siobhan. Uh, in fact, I've gone slightly wider than the decade because I don't think that it really makes sense just to stick to the decade. And what I started on is I, I really went back to about the, year, the 1890s because if you read the conventional historical narrative, you're told the years from the 1890s to up to 1916 are seen as a period of cultural revolution, growing interest in the Irish language, Irish history, cultural heritage, going beyond the scholarly circle into the wider public domain. Uh, these are also the years when the Gaelic League is founded. You get the expansion of Irish language publications. The Abbey Theatre emerges as, national, as a national theatre. You get the legendary figures of Celtic literature, Cúhol and Deirdre, etc., revitalised through plays, poems, pageants. Lady Gregory is visiting the local workhouse in Gort to capture the, the language and stories of the elderly inmates. It's also the time when a Dubliners with bicycles and some holiday time begin to explore the west of Ireland, helped by the development of light railways, which are like the tram that is disrupting our life outside the door at the moment, except in country areas, and causeways are being constructed so that you can get into places that would have been much less accessible in the past. People were interested in the geography, the natural resources, there was concern about the poverty, disease, quality of housing, and great interest in the area's language, culture, and lifestyle. And you can see that in John Milton Singh's accounts of the West of Ireland, rather romanticised, which are illustrated, published in the Manchester Guardian, illustrated by Jack Yates. Uh, you get other people heading to learn their spoken Irish by going to the West of Ireland again. So what, am I, what I want to begin by asking is, where does the academy fit into all this populist, popular activity that's going on at the time? I'm going to begin with the West of Ireland before moving back metaphorically to Dublin. If you go through the Academy's proceedings throughout the 1890s, you get a series of grants made to Charles Brown and A.C. Haddon to carry out ethnological investigations in the remote parts of Ireland. Over the years, they conducted studies of the Iron Islands, Gorumland, the Mullet, Inishkeen, in West Mayo, and other communities. Now, some of this work wouldn't be would be regarded as questionable by contemporary intellectual and ethical standards. One of their interests was the ethnic makeup of the population, and they're big into craniometry. And I have seen the craniometry measurements for Owen McNeil. He got it done in the 1890s and gave it to the family, suggested it be a great Christmas, fun at Christmas for them all. Uh, and he uh, was trying to link uh, head size to ethnic makeup and intellectual caliber. And Haddon is known to have removed skulls from ancient cemeteries in remote parts of the west of Ireland for, as part of his research. Now, it's important to note that a lot of others were doing the same. Harvard was big into this for many decades to come after that point. What's interesting about the work of Haddon and Brown is that it's very comprehensive. They document, I used it years ago as teaching tool, housing, diet, tea. They're all getting stomach diseases from drinking tea that's been stewed for at least three or four hours at a time. The occupations, the lifestyle, it's all really documented very well at a stage when the Congested Districts Board and the Light Railways are beginning to remove the isolation of these areas. They're building causeways, they're opening them up to commercial forces, lace-making classes, commercial knitting, uh, fish curing, etc. And it's evident that those researchers are very conscious that they're documenting communities that are on the cusp of change. In an address to the Academy in 1895, having listened to a paper by Brown on the ethnography of the Mullet and Inner Scheme, the Lord Lieutenant, Lord Houghton, who was the Academy visitor, noted that if such inquiries are to be of real value, there's no time to be lost. Every day, before our eyes, as it were, old local traditions, old customs, old stories are fast disappearing before the inroads of civilization. And he noted the goal of these papers was to treat the life of people and their past as one organized whole. A, 
Hadden and Brown's studies have attracted much less attention than the major study of Clare Island, which began in 1908. The years around the turn of the century have been described as the golden age of Irish field studies, when groups such as the Belfast and Dublin Naturalist Field Clubs recorded Ireland's botany, zoology and geology. The Academy was a major part of that process, electing some of the most significant field studies researchers to membership. Robert Lloyd Prager, who was a civil engineer by uh, education and his day job was in the National Library, is an obvious case in point. Uh, the Academy fostered collaboration between academics and the wider community, it's something we still do today in other ways. They allocated funding for field studies and they published many of the key findings in Academy transactions. The partnership is most evident in the Clare Island Survey, which was funded by the Academy, by the British Association for the Advancement of Science, the Royal Society and the Royal Dublin Society, with the Academy acting as the major coordinator of the project and most importantly publishing the findings in 10 volumes 19, between 1911 and 1915, a total of 67 reports. The survey was directed by, uh, by Francis Sharp, who was up in natural, uh, um, he worked in the Natural History Museum, an MRIA and a long-term member of council. The secretary was the redoubtable Robert Lloyd Prager, one of the most distinguished members of the Academy of his generation. Most of these reports focus on the natural sciences, the botany, the zoology and geology. There are also volumes in archaeology by Westrop, family names on McNeil, and on Gaelic plant and animal names and agriculture. The survey includes studies of the nearby mainland as a basis for comparison. And the work was carried out by up to 200 researchers and that would dwarf many major science projects say, today. Um, and a, a great mixture of members of the Academy, leading British scientists, members of field clubs, including quite a number of women who came in through the, the, the non-professional, the more amateur route. Clare Island study also enlisted the support of the Congested Districts Board, the Department of Agriculture and Technical Improvement, again examples of the Academy's capacity to build partnerships with local scholars, government agencies, and uh, lo local amateur scholars, government agencies and academics. Some aspects of the research into marine life, especially the work that required dredging of the seabed below low tide and the collection of marine specimens was carried out with the assistance of the newly commissioned fishery cruiser, the Helga, which was the property of the Department of Agriculture and Technical uh, Improvement, whose fishery division was very supportive of the survey. The Helga, however, is better known in Irish history as the boat that shelled Dublin from the River Liffey during the 1916 rising. Uh, it has sometimes been argued that field studies was a safe area for scholarly research, especially for Irish unionists, one that avoided more politically contentious topics. It's equally important to note, however, the Academy had a has a long history of research and scholarship in Irish language and culture, and it would be very naive to assume that all the scholars working in that field automatically identified with a modern Irish nationalism or demands for self-government. While the Academy's mission was not to popularise the Irish language or culture, from almost its foundation it played a very significant role in the preservation of Irish manuscripts and Irish material heritage especially the artefacts from pre-Norman Ireland and the study and publication of works relating to Celtic archaeology and Gaelic manuscripts. Contributions of figures such as Charles O'Connor, Belnagara, Petrie, O'Donovan, O'Curry and William Wilde, or in a slightly different manner, the Young Irlander, Thomas Davis, all members of the Academy, through the emergence of cultural nationalism of a more mainstream but still minority interest should not be underestimated. Members of the Academy and scholars employed by the Academy transcribed and translated early Irish manuscripts which were published in a, a material from that was published in the Academy's transactions or in separate volumes, enabling others to transmit this material to a much wider public.
It is also very significant that the three most important figures in the formation of the Gaelic League and the dissemination of the Irish language around the turn of the century, Douglas Hyde, Eugene O'Grownie and Owen McNeill were all members of the Academy. O'Grownie, of course, is the man who authored a very important Irish grammar. These three, together with the Celtic scholar Cúna Meyer, also a member of the Academy, were active in the campaign to Irish made a requirement for matriculation in the National University of Ireland. Though there's no evidence that the Academy per se adopted a position on this, and I would be very surprised if they had. So it would not be incorrect to see the Gaelic League as building on earlier work by the Academy, preserving when the Academy collected, preserved, translated, and disseminated material. During the high point of the Gaelic revival, the Academy continued its long-established scholarly activities in the field, making photographic copies of the Yellow Book of Lecan, the Book of Armagh available, editions of the Annals of Ulster, and through the Todd Lecture series, which were given in the Academy House and later published, promoting research into these and other Gaelic manuscripts. The 1890s had brought a significant change in the Academy with the transfer of the museum collection to the National Museum, new National Museum in Kildare Street. With the, when this happened, the library became the intellectual centre of scholarship in Academy House. But the departure of the museum doesn't end the Academy's links with the collection. Indeed, they continue to add to it, notably contesting the British Museum's purchase of the Brighter Hoard, uh, which they got for Ireland, and archaeology remained a core subject of interest to the Academy. At the beginning of the 20th century, however, the Academy's scholarly interests appear rather confined by contemporary standards. The primary focus in polite literature and antiquities was on archaeology and philology, both Celtic and classical. The editing and publication of manuscripts and charters, descriptions of archaeological sites, both Celtic and classical, excavations, material artefacts. The Academy didn't engage with modern literature, modern languages, certainly not with modern drama, art or music. As such, it reflected the intellectual bias of tr traditional universities at the time, with their emphasis on the classics. The Academy's major contribution was to expand these interests to include ancient Ireland and the Celtic world. It scarcely needs noting that the social sciences did not feature very much, unless we include the work of Haddon and Brown discussed above, or indeed recognise the fact that John Kells Ingram, who I'll talk about in a moment, uh, was president, and he was Quickly professor at Trinity College and a social scientist with an international reputation. In his 1906 presidential address, Robert Atkinson criticised the narrow remit of the Academy, especially the absence of studies of works of literary art. You don't get papers on Shakespeare, for example, given at the time or appearing in the proceedings, arguing that if the humanities belong to the Academy's sphere of action, these should not be ignored. He couldn't recall any paper read in the Academy on a poet or prose writer of English or any other modern language. Uh, and didn't do much uh, classical literature either, indeed. It was much more philology. Admittedly, he did hope that papers on prose and poetry or specific writers would result in the discovery of the scientific principles that could be used to judge the merits of any literary product, which was a bit naive on his part. Despite Atkinson's comments, there's no evidence that the Academy's range of interests had changed much before 1920. But within its traditional intellectual zone, important work was being undertaken, particularly in Celtic studies, uh, and as outlined earlier, in field studies. In 1892, Academy President John Kells Ingram reviewed the work carried out in the past by the Academy, particularly in terms of Celtic studies, before going on to highlight areas that he thinks should be prioritised at this point. 
One was the perpetuation for purposes of study of the forms, dimensions, and decorations of Irish National Museums by photography. He mentions the sketches of Margaret Stokes, who was an honorary member of the Academy at a time when women were not permitted to be ordinary members. He lamented the fact that only 16 of the 76 round towers had been illustrated by Lord Dunraven, and only 20 of the many sculptured crosses. Every round tower and cross, every cromlech, every pillar stone or circuit of stones should be photographed, its situation measurements recorded. We should thus be protected against the worst results of time and vandalism. In other words, huge preservation job. He also called for the exploration of ancient sepulchres and for Irish-based scholars to be conscious of developments elsewhere. Much of what he outlined was carried out, and the results can be seen in proceedings, notably uh, publications by McAllister and by Westrop, who was responsible for some incredibly meticulous sketches. Ingram also called for an increased application of critical spirit to the study of early Irish history, because without a rigorous and searching criticism, we shall never separate what can be proved from what is conjectural. He was critical of the fact that members of the Academy did very little work on Irish history post-Anglo-Norman invasion, and he suggested that the Academy had been unnecessarily timid, and that in any case we appear to have arrived at a time where a large part of our history might be handled among us with calmness and impartiality. In other words, he wants the Academy to move beyond the ancient, in, in the early medieval into the more medieval and modern period. You do get some work appearing in medieval Ireland, mainly focused on charters, Gilbert's work on Dublin, 17th century publishing in Irish cities and towns, not areas of high political controversy. Atkinson, speaking in 1906, shared many of Ingram's concerns about the need for more critical analysis of early Irish texts. And I'm quoting him here, at present, dim ghosts flit across the stage of the mythic period. Cúhollán, Thin, Oshin are but the phantoms of the poet's vision. Uh, and they're very prominent phantoms of the poet's vision at this stage, of course. Uh, uh, but Atkinson wants a clearer historic vision of the legendary records of early Ireland. He praises Bury's work on St. Patrick, and there's a lot of material on St. Patrick in the Academy's uh, publications. But he calls for some more proper study of the early migrations of Ireland, uh, Largoala and the Viking Age. This called for a more scholarly approach to early Irish history. The annals and the hagiography brings me to the figure of Owen MacNeill. Francis John Byrne claims that, quote, to MacNeill belongs the credit of having dragged Celtic Ireland practically single-handed from the antiquarian mists into the light of history. He came to the study of the Gaelic world as almost through the philo philological disciplines. But, and I'm not going on myself, he used this philological skill as a basis for carrying out a critical analysis of the content of the text and from these began to construct a historical account that would withstand critical study. Uh, MacNeill was born in 1867, the year of the Fenian Rebellion, in the Glens of Antrim into a seafaring family. His father was once on a ship icebound at Archangel, but the next generation concentrated on education. Five of the six boys achieved senior careers in the public service or academic life. Many of those who took part in 1916 Rising were, were, belonged to the first generation of Irish Catholics to have had wider access to education, following the introduction of the 1879-1878 Intermediate Education Act. That act provided the first state money for secondary schools, including scholarships for the top students, which often enabled them to continue their education, and MacNeill was one of these. He was educated at St. Malachy's College in Belfast, the Larson College, where as a boarder he heard the Ulster Unionist demonstrations against Gladstone's first home rule bill. His scholarship in modern languages on his intermediate certificate examinations, there were three grades of it, the senior grade would be equivalent to the modern cert. 
enabled him to continue his education post-secondary school. He stayed at St. Malachy's studying for a Royal University degree in modern languages. The Royal University was the bargain basement uh, university degree. You could study for it in established colleges, at home at the kitchen, uh, at the kitchen table, or anywhere else. And McNeil was doing it in St. Malachy's. Many of the bigger secondary schools had a kind of a college strand streamed to them at the time. But um, McNeil had to find a job, uh, so before finishing his degree, he was appointed as a junior clerk in the Dublin Law Courts. Again, new careers are opening up on merit. He's the first clerk to be appointed on the basis of examination results, not patronage, and the first Catholic in the office. Again, many of those who were active in the War of Independence in 1916 were also people who came into government careers around that time. The senior ranks of the public service in Ireland were still mainly filled through patronage. They're, they're behind Britain in that regard. Um, in Dublin, McNeil took a degree in constitutional law, jurisprudence and political economy, attending lectures at King's Inns and, Tr and Trinity College. And that would really have set him up for a good career in the legal service. But he then reverted, having done that, to his first love, which was languages, but not modern languages. He studied older Middle English, Old Middle Irish, sorry, with Edmund Hogan, who was a member of the Society of Jesus and a professor at UCD, uh, which was then a small Jesuit college. During the 1890s, Hogan, who was a member of the academy, was the Todd Professor of Celtic at the academy. So McNeil mastered Ogham inscriptions, early Irish, and used those linguistic skills to try and answer historical questions, such as his 1906 essay, Where Does Irish History Begin? McNeil took the sources that existed, the annals, the genealogical lists, uh, Keating, uh, First Passer Ern, the Largo Walla, the book, a book from Invasions, analysed them and began the process of cre creating a historically coherent account. He dismissed the narrative of early Irish settlements, invasions, given in the Largo Walla, which is the Partilans, the Furbolog, the Tour de Danon, as a work of fiction. Though he obviously didn't do a very good job dismissing it, because I certainly learned it at school, and I discovered to my horrors recently that Alva Johnson, who's younger than me, also learned it at school. So you know, a, a bit more destruction needed on on that particular na uh, narrative. These activities inevitably brought him into contact with the academy, because the library here holds the key collection of, of manuscript material relating to early art. And as I said, his mentor Edmund Hogan was Todd Professor at the academy. Uh, the Proceedings of the Royal Irish Academy was one of the few major vehicles for publishing scholarly material relating to pre-Norman Ireland, given the attitudes that existed at the time among scholars elsewhere. It would have been almost impossible to publish in British journals. The German publications would have been open to linguistic material. McNeil started on this research while he still worked in the courts. He was also interested in modern Irish, and there are residues of him in the glens of Antrim when he's growing up, but no Irish speaks in the family, so he goes and learns modern Irish holidaying in Inishman. In 1893, as I mentioned earlier, he was among the founders of the Gaelic League, inspired by Douglas Hyde's paper, The Necessity for de Anglicising Ireland. McNeil, once again, was part of this cohort of young men or women who had acquired secondary education, come to Dublin from the country, having passed their examinations, working often in clerical administrative posts, rather alienated from the culture that they discovered, um, and looking for places where they could congregate. They're nationalists. Uh, we don't need to determine what variety. Their education has given them analytical skills, but no knowledge of their own history or culture. McNeil was on page secretary to the early league, hide of the inspiration, he was the dog's body, apparently. He was the worker. He edited on Clive Sullish, and he nominated Patrick Pierce for membership of the league executive in 1898. P 
Pierce became an editor of Five Solid in succession to McNeil. It's interesting, given their complex and difficult relationship in the Irish Volunteers and the run-up to the Rising, to recall that they'd known each other for a long time. Keeping up his scholarly work, McNeil became a part-time lecturer in Irish at St. Patrick's College from Condra, and in 1909 became the first professor of early and medieval Irish history at UCD. At first sight, McNeil's research into Ireland pre-1167 can be seen as an exercise in pure scholarship, something which is far removed from his involvement with the Gaelic League or the Irish Volunteers, but it has a very strong political purpose. By the end of the 19th century, the history of Ireland, as presented by leading historians such as James Anthony Prude, can, in the words of his biographer Kieran Brady, be easily summarised. Throughout their history, the native Irish had repeatedly proved themselves to be quite incapable of self-government. It was the barbaric decline of the whole island in the 12th century, its political and moral decline from the golden age of saints and scholars to the degeneracy of the warring petty kingdoms and the virtual disappearance of the Christian church that had induced Pope Adrian IV to set in train the conquest of Ireland for the salvation of its own people. You get similar versions in the histories of Ireland written by Goddard Henry Orpen and Edmund Curtis. And while the message of an Irish people incapable of governing themselves was being applied to it 100 years earlier, it implicitly had resonances for an Ireland who was in search of home rule. Indeed, McNeil consistently set out to show, sometimes rather you know, excessively in his writings on pre-Norman Ireland, that Ireland was a unified country. In other words, Ireland in the 5th, 6th century was a unified country. This is an argument that is rather ahistoric and he pushes certainly too far. It was obviously a very politically powerful argument at the time he's making it. If Ireland was a coherent entity in the 6th, 7th century, this was not because of the power of the High King, but because there was a common legal and intellectual framework uh, which was held together by a learned class, the emphasis on genealogies, early Irish and common learning, so academicians. In November 1913, McNeil published an article, The North Began in Antlive Solish, which is the Gaelic League magazine, claiming rather naively that the formation of the Ulster Volunteers marked the beginning of a new popular movement that would ultimately overthrow unionism and calling for the formation of the Irish Volunteers, a nationalist variant of the Ulster Volunteers. This brought him to a leadership position in the Irish Volunteers, which he retained through the split in the Volunteers when the majority sided with John Redmond and supported Britain's war effort. McNeil was neither was either not aware or chose to ignore the fact that the Irish volunteers were heavily infiltrated by the IRB. Indeed, the IRB managed to control many of the key positions, and it was the IRB members on the Military Council that planned the 1916 Rising with McNeil unawares of it. Liam O'Brien, who is Professor of Romance Languages at, UC, at University College Galway and a veteran of the 1916 Rising, claimed in his testimony to the Bureau of Military History that other veterans told him that in the run-up to the Rising, and I'm quoting McNeil, I'm quoting Liam O'Brien here, McNeil would more and more tend to absent himself from executive meetings of the volunteers to slip back into the 10th century and the Book of the Dun Cow, which is better known to us as Laura Lahira, leaving Pierce to chair meetings of the volunteers. Uh, the book, uh, Laura Lahira, of course, lives in, this, in Academy House. The fact that Academy, uh, the Irish Volunteer Headquarters were also at Dawson Street, dangerously close to the Academy, must have been too tempting for Owen McNeil. McNeil's position on physical force is complex. He wanted the Irish Volunteers to remain in existence, to exercise influence over Britain if needed. 
He was apparently prepared to fight in the event of conscription being imposed or if Britain attempted to disarm the volunteers during Holy Week. Uh, he was prepared to go along with it. But as we know, uh, because of the German debacle over Roger Case from the German arms landing, he issued a countermanding order from numerous Eastern Sunday. McNeil was arrested after the rising when he went to the British military authorities urging them to stop the executions. He was court-martialed and sentenced to life imprisonment in England. He lost his UCD chair. That was, he was reinstated the, the next year, was kept for him after, after he was released from, the, from prison, and he was also expelled from the Royal Irish Academy. There were precedents for McNeil's expulsion. Three members of the Academy who were involved in the 1798 rebellion were expelled from the Academy because of their involvement in the rebellion. Easter 1916 brings out the tensions within the Academy between its establishment identity and its long-established links with Irish culture and nationalism. It would be wrong to see the Academy as deeply embroiled in the heated politics of Ireland, and especially Dublin, in the second decade of the 20th century. Trinity promised John Pentland Mahaffey, who was president uh, of the Academy 1911 to 1916, described it as a sort of backwater outside the Russian terminal of the torrent and many members undoubtedly wished that to be so. In his presidential address in 1896, John Kelso Ingram, uh, author of his youth of Who Fears to Speak of 98, expressed the hope the Academy would continue to be, quote, a common ground on which Irish men, otherwise of differing views, may meet as friends for mutual assistance and encouragement in the pursuit of truth, in the cultivation of letters, and in the illustration of our national memorials. Now, Ingram was writing at a relatively calm time in Irish politics. The common ground was much more tricky terrain during the years of the Great War. Indeed, Tim Collins, in an article about Prager and the Clare Island survey, he claims that Francis Sharp, who was president of the survey team, and Prager, who was its secretary, eh, were both subjected to anti-German hysteria following the outbreak of war. And it was only after the strongest representations were made on their behalf to the government that they were not interned for the duration of war. German-born in Ireland were all locked up in, old, in, the, in the workhouse in Old Castle for the duration of the war, had had a fairly rough time of it. Prager's name was of German origin. He was born, he was born in, I think it was North Down, uh, but Prager's wife was German-born. Scharf's father was German-born, though Scharf himself had been born in England. For the Royal Irish Academy, there were two personal links with 1916. Econ Plunkett, the father of Joseph Mary Plunkett, who had three sons fighting in 1916, was director of the National Museum, member of the Academy, in regular contact with the Academy because of the Academy's custody of the artifacts in the museum. He, he, you know, it's all over the constant minutes. Plunkett didn't fight in 1916 and wasn't interred, so he was, the Academy did nothing to him, but the Royal Dublin Society expelled him from membership because of his family connections. McNeil, however, as I said, was arrested, court-martialed, and therefore expelled. To say that the Academy didn't support the Rising is absolutely unnecessary. Given the background of most members, many of them were Trinity College academics, there's still a good sprinkling of, of a landed gentry with a serious interest in field studies, archaeology, and other scholarly pursuits, quite a number of clergy from the Church of Ireland, a lesser number from the Catholic clergy, senior members of the British Civil Service in Ireland, uh, it's highly probable that a majority of Academy members would have been opposed to even Home Rule at the time, because that was the common pick, uh, position among the, the establishment in Dublin at the time. And as Thomas Irish's recent book on Trinity at War and Revolution, published by the Academy, shows, in 1912, the Provost of Trinity signed the Ulster Covenant, 
the Board of Trinity College Dublin pressed the British House of Commons for an amendment to the Home Rule Bill that would exclude Trinity from a Home Rule Ireland, a kind of Vatican City for Protestants and Unionists in the centre of Dublin. It would have been quite fascinating to see it in existence. Wiser councils prevailed and a group of fellows, mainly scientists, worked to have that amendment withdrawn. But the episode, I think, is significant, and you can see where some sections of the membership of the Academy, who would have been represented on that board, um, it would have thought at the time. At the beginning of 1916, the president of the Academy was John Penson Mahaffey, Provost of Trinity, a classical scholar, a very good classical scholar indeed, more widely known in the history of the period for refusing to permit a meeting in Trinity organised by the College's Gaelic Society, a recently established Gaelic Society, to mark the centenary of the death of Thomas Davis. The planned meeting would have been addressed by Patrick Pierce and W.B. Yeats, and chaired by Mahaffey, but Mahaffey refused to let Pierce uh, speak in Trinity because Pierce was known to be opposed to recruitment into the British Army. So the meeting took place in the ancient concert hall, hall in what is now Pierce Street, with a large attendance and many distinguished speakers that included Douglas Hyde and Horace Plunkett. Yeats expressed regret that politics couldn't be put aside for the sake of literature. Mahaffey had also been a leading opponent of the introduction of Irish into the school curriculum some years earlier, and widely remembered for disparaging comments about the intellectual status of Ireland, though Thomas Irish suggests he might have moderated those views by 1916. In March 1916, Mahaffey was succeeded uh, by John Henry Bernard, the Archbishop of Dublin, who subsequently became Provost of Trinity, a man who Bentham was probably even more antipathetic towards Irish self-government in any guise than Mahaffey was. Bernard's son had been killed in Gallipoli in 1915, and that would also have coloured his views on 1916. In 1923, after the founding of the Irish Free State, Bernard, who had succeeded Mahaffey as Provost of Trinity, petitioned the British government for financial support for Trinity, only to be reminded very bluntly that there was now a government in Dublin, and the government in Dublin was now responsible for funding education and all other, all other matters, not Westminster. Um, but with Bernard as president, McNeil's fate was probably sealed. The council met on the 1st of June 1916, by which time McNeil had been court-martialed, sentenced to life in prison and resolved that Owen McNeill, founder of the Volunteers, Celtic scholar and professor of Irish UCD, should be deprived of his membership of the Academy, having been found guilty of crimes against the peace of His Majesty, the King and the Realm. McNeill also lost his professorship in early Irish history at UCD, though that was really kept waiting for him, and he was reinstated almost immediately he was released from prison. Um, Thomas Irish suggests that the prominent part paid, played by Trinity men in Ostrom sizing McNeill from the Academy academic establishment again seemed to confirm Trinity's anti-Irish status. I think he may be going too far in that. In 1920, a number of members renominated McNeil for election. The first name was that of Michael Cox, graduate of the Royal College of Surgeons, a member of the medical faculty St. Vincent's Hospital. Um, other signatories included the inevitable Count Plunkett, leading Celtic scholars, several UCD-based members, and Thomas Westrup, Limerick landlord and antiquarian scholar uh, who did remarkable work in terms of archaeological sites and had worked with McNeil on the Clare Island survey. McNeil was readmitted the following year and in 1940 he was elected president. So we can say that the presidents of the academy include the founders of the 18th century Irish volunteers and the 20th century Irish volunteers, though I would not in any way suggest that founding volunteers is a typical activity for members of the academy. In fact, I think very much the contrary. It was, however, very important, I think, for the Academy that McNeil was reinstated. 
not least because Owen McNeill becomes Minister for Education in the first government of the Irish Free State, and the academy, which had been funded by Whitehall and Dublin Castle, now had to secure its funding from the Irish government. Now, I must say, from, in terms of McNeill as Minister for Education, I think the 10th century called again, because my favourite description comes from Ernest Blythe's memoirs of, of them all in Dublin Castle during the early stages of the Civil War, huddled around the fire, McNeill working on his early Irish history, and a deputation of teachers comes in, something about being paid, some kind of quite important matters, teachers, and McNeill very reluctantly puts his scholarly work aside and goes out to meet them. You know, in other words, you know, this was second tier in ministry, Minister of Education was very much second place to, to his scholarship. But if McNeill had not been reinstated as a member, it would have signalled a serious split between the Academy and the new Irish state, which would have had long-term consequences. And bear in mind as well that Celtic studies, the Irish language, uh, pre-Norman archaeology were central issues for the new Irish state. They were an area where people who were loggerheads over civil war and many other things could find common ground, and I think that's quite important. It's during the 1920s the museum is reorganised and the Celtic material is put in a very prominent position. You know, as you come in, that's when the, 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 the high crosses suddenly appear in the rotunda and so on like that. Up to then, it would have been classical material. So there's an awful lot going on in terms of Celtic Ireland, and it would have been regrettable if the academy had been, in a sense, outside that particular pale. The Academy also signals its relationship with New Ireland by electing W.T. Cosgrave as a member during this time. So you can see the Academy adjusting to a new world. There's other bits of adjustment that I think I need to do more work on at the time, but you find the first soil doing this Committee on Resources and Industries, and it contains an awful lot of work on geology, geological resources, iron, you know, timber and so on like that, minerals and so on like that. And it draws on Academy Field Studies, and one of the key people in it would have been Hugh Ryan, a member of the Academy. He was on the commission of the College of Science. So you can see the Academy moving in in various directions like that. But I'm going to end with the best link between the Academy and 1916 and what follows. And I'm going back to the memoirs of Liam O'Brien, Quivney Pin, there's a copy in the library here. O'Brien was with the Irish Citizen Army and the College of Surgeons during Easter week. And he describes his time there. He, uh, what they did in all these garrisons is they went out to forage for supplies, one thing or another, in the nearby places. And as part of the foraging, they went into a house, into a place. I have to find the actual address. And there was a place in it, and one room in it was a place where some Gael Gory met in a club called Nagana Fiona, the wild geese. And as part of the foraging for supplies and equipment, he removed a couple of cushions from the room so they could sleep, use them as pillows, left an exploratory note in orange that these had been appropriated by the Irish Republic. But then there was another room in the same building that he knew very well, and I'm going to start quoting here. Uh, a, one, one of the people, uh, one, of, one of the other members of the kind of foraging party comes in and says, Bob, Toshan Laura Milchuk Morris Chihan, Nismona Wakame Riyuk. Now, why eat my barricade? You know, there's big, enormous books in here, much bigger than I've ever seen before. They'd be wonderful for, as a barricade. I'm not as far away as Bob, a compiler, a stopper, lar, tuba, rishkis, jah, on a vocally. So, Bob says these books would be the most perfect thing to stop bullets, so you're to break into this room. The room was locked and to steal them. And he comes in and says, Fonaga, Ershimisha, Ligid. They're all looking in through the keyhole, by the way, it's well well locked. So he looks in through the keyhole and then he says, 
I looked in and I didn't only see them, I recognized them. Shinid, Laur Line, the Book of Leinster, Laur Nahira, Laur Bui Lekin, the Yellow Book of Lekin, Laur Balian Mothad, Balimoth Book, Rawlinson B. Kids Doyeg, Rawlinson B. 112, Namaksule Morid in the Shan Laura Goelge, Ud, the Kurha, Amakla Father, and Law Egg Akadok Rig in the Hearn. So it's the facsimiles of all these books that have been put out over many years by the Royal Arch Academy. And he says, Bisho is school the Nguelga. This is the, the advanced school in Irish, which was set up uh, uh, by Kuno Meyer, uh, uh, where he'd heard many lectures from Kuno, from Marstrander, and in the first month of the war, from Peterson, from Copenhagen. And he was sitting beside De Valera at this lecture. The two of them were listening to it together. Uh, and then he turns to the men, jumps in the fear. Will this argue a vocally a germ curd eaten a shan laura a kyun shiv a kyun shiv and should? Do you know what these books are looking there? And they say Nelius. And he said, Shinid shan laura gwelgan a heron. These are the old books of the Irish language. Kerafila bleen these, they're 4,000 years old. I think it's a slight exaggeration there. On thick and shiv, you see their son will the shan laura shin, a tomager tridge, were fighting for these old books uh, and uh, we could say that and they all then take a note that they'd be better it'd be better to die than do any damage to the old books so anyway the royal Irish academy is therefore at the center of easter 1916 they were fighting for those old books so that note i will leave you